All right, well, we are um, uh, having a lesson today that is not directly out of Ephesians. I, um, to be very honest, was supposed to cancel today. Today was supposed to be a non-Bible study day, but I forgot to tell you that last week. So, (laughs) I decided that I would teach a lesson that went with last week's lesson and fits right in for where we'll pick up what we pick up in Ephesians 4 next week, so um, hopefully you'll find this one to be uh, uh, meaningful as it, as it fits between the two. So let's go ahead and, and uh, start in prayer this morning. Father, we are grateful for a place to meet. Um, there was no concern on any of our hearts this morning about police uh, blocking our ability to come or raiding our Bible study or taking our Bibles or hurting those that we love. We're grateful for those privileges, and every now and then it's good just to be reminded. Thank you for the word of God that we hold in our laps. Pray, Father, you'd help us to be more attentive to it in a practical, everyday kind of way. Teach us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Now, uh, last week in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we ended that, that section, that, that portion of scripture, talking about the unity of sitting together. And again, remember the word sitting in our study of, of Ephesians is not a physical act of, of sitting on a chair, but it's the idea of being ensconced uh, or settled into God's truth. And because we're settled in it, we're sitting in it, it makes a difference in our lives. And the big, the big deal of the end of chapter 2 last week was all about the unity that, that Paul was wanting them to have, the Jews and the Gentiles, for the purpose of the church being built up and edified. And you know, you will remember, we'll remember that he used the word one over and over and over again. Again, unity, not uniformity, not samey-same, but with commonality, those things that hold us together. And the things that hold us together are far more significant than the things that, that are different. Even among, even among modern Christendom, that which divides us is, is minuscule in comparison to that which unites us. But we often make a big deal, get all settled in, uh, the concept or the idea of we're so different. And I wanted to talk about this, this idea of togetherness today out of the passage in chapter 10 of Luke. So if you're there, we're going to explore this theme of of the unity required among believers, the idea of how we treat each other. So in Luke chapter 10, we're going to to find, down in verse number 25, uh, a lawyer who's going to test the Lord. And and the, the testing is an attempt on his part to, to get the Lord to kind of trip up, to, 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 um, to, to, to violate maybe something he said before, or to, to challenge, to test him. And the nation of Israel, we, we don't think about them very much thinking about end times, or, or what's coming, or the promise, or, or eternity, but they certainly did. So let's start there with Daniel chapter 12, just as a reminder that even though the Jewish people... Were, were preoccupied with the coming of the Messiah, they were also looking ahead. And in Daniel chapter 12, we just get a little glimpse of the fact that they cared about what was coming, about eternal life. Yes, they were caught up in the, in the sacrificial, 
sacrificial system. Yes, that was required that the high priest go in once a year and the, and the penalty for sin was rolled forward. Yes, it was a, an everyday occurrence with their various offerings and sacrifices, but they had a sense about eternal life. Look at Daniel chapter 12 and verses 2 and following. Daniel's doing the writing here and he says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So my point being that the background of of this, this attorney who's going to ask these challenging or testing questions it's not, it's not just that he was wondering about, gee, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life, which is what he asks in verse 25 of Luke 10. He's, he's actually trying to minimize whatever efforts might be required of him in terms of, 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 of his life. So um, this particular event, this discussion from this attorney and the subsequent story that Jesus tells is recorded in two other places in our Bible, in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12. But let's look in Luke 10 now, in verse 25. So on an occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, or rabbi, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Jews talked about it. The Jews knew it was an important truth. How, How do I inherit eternal life? How do I gain? How do I get? The question, it's the same question that the rich man Ask in in Mark 10 and and repeated in Matthew uh, 19. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And frankly, that is the key question of all all humanity. Man, at some point or another, ought to grapple with, gee, is this all there is? Is there a life after this? And if so, how do I attain it? What's it like? How do I get there? What, What are the bases on which I earn it? But he, he isn't so much really open for, please teach me, as much as he is, let's see if we can fool this guy. Let's see if we can twist him up. So Jesus is going to answer, but he's going to answer with a couple of questions. So verse 26, what is written in the law, he asks, and how do you read it? What is written in the law? Now the word law refers primarily to the first five books of the Bible, or the first five books of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, Penta, five, okay? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would be referred to as the law. And it also, that term, the law, the Torah, could refer to the whole Old Testament. It could refer to the whole council of God's word. But more specifically for a Jew, it would refer to those first five books. So so what Jesus is saying, is says, okay, so what is written in the first five books? What do you know about in the first five books. What in the first books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy do you know that would teach you about eternal life? And and surprisingly, there is a lot. Now, we tend to lump those five books into the stories of the patriarchs. So we've got creation, and then we've got Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, and blah, blah, blah. And then Moses comes along and leads them into the to promised land. That's the Pentateuch. Yes, but there is a lot in there about, about eternity as well. So he's asking, Jesus is asking, he may have been actually pointing to one of the phylacteries on this, this young ruler, or this young uh, attorney. 
A phylactery, remember, is a box, a little box, usually a leather box, and they would attach them to, to wrists and, and around their head. And, and what was in the box? Scripture. Scripture, right. They would have a verse or two in that, in that little box, and they held it on their physical person. So Jesus might have said, so you're asking me, how do you inherit uh, eternal life? Points to one of the little boxes, maybe hanging from his head or wrists or wherever, and says, so what, you know, what, what's written in the law? What, what do you see? And, and what's your reading of it? How do you understand it? The, the phrase, what is your reading of it, is a standard answer that the rabbis would have asked in a, in a give-and-take kind of discussion. Now, back then, teaching was more uh, question and answer, question and answer, question and answer. Not like this. Not, you know, Sherry vomits out and you listen and go home and <laughs> hopefully think about it. But um, it would be more of a Socratic method of, of I ask a question, you ask me one, we talk about the questions, we go back and forth. So when, when Jesus looks at him and says, so what is written in the law? And he's pointing to one of these little leather boxes. He's trying to get this guy to say, what, 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 what have you pursued? What have you thought about? What have you understood? What do you get about God? How do you, how do you read it? And so almost in a, sure, I know the answer to this one kind of way, the, the attorney answers in verse 27. He says, uh, well, got it. Here it is, the, the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, anybody recognize that? Yeah? Okay. It's called the Shema, and it is in Deuteronomy 6. Every Jewish person from the time they were an infant would have been able to rattle that off. So while, while the, the attorney thinks, aha, I got the answer. It's like the kids in school. You know, they want the right answer and the first answer and the first hand up. He's, he's one of, oh, I, got, I know this one. And he, and he quotes the Shema. Well, there is so much in the Shema. I mean, it's not a You know, um, being raised in the Roman Catholic uh, pursuit, we had, we had little catechism things that we memorized. And, you know, I, I always prided myself on being... Well, there was no heart attached to that. That was just first one out, get the prize, get the sticker, whatever. M much like some of the kids here, trait and verse, Friday. What do you, what do we, trait and verse. Well, that's God's word we're talking about, not just a spelling word we're memorizing. But from them, it's trait and verse, trait and verse. He's kind of he's responding the same way. And he throws out there, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You know, with all your mind gets added later. And then he adds the part that, that was added by Jesus in Leviticus 19, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he thinks he's got it all covered. Ta-da! That's kind of the, and aren't I smart, kind of point. And, <laughs> and I love, I love Jesus' response to that. Jesus' response is, you have answered correctly. And so you can just imagine, if Jesus had stopped there, you have answered correctly, you know, a little puff up, a little, yeah, right, got it, nailed the Shema, which is no big treat for a Jewish boy, but nonetheless. But what does Jesus go on to, to, to say? He says, now do this, and you will live. And you can almost sense the attorney, it's not just what I rattle off. It actually has to have an impact in my life. I have to do that stuff. Do this and live. Do, do this. You know, 
we often, even in our walk, often take this mindset about Christianity that it's a, it's a contract. We, we read it, we agree to the doctrinal position of our church, we sign off on the theology of it, uh, and, and, and or maybe we join, if our church has an actual membership procedure, we join a church. It's like getting our, our identification card. Do you remember when you get your first library card as a child? None of you lived my life. Oh, man, when I got my own library card, I was in seventh heaven. I can remember the little Disneyland uh, wallet I had. And the only thing that was in there was a little thing where you filled out your name and your address. And on the other side was proudly displayed my library card. Well, Christianity kind of does that, as if we had a... A, you know, a really cool library card that we get. Ooh, I, I'm Mariners. Saddle. Toast it. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. Sign the doctrine statement. I'm Protestant. You know, this kind of a Protestant. Um, you know, I, I think I think this, this lawyer is going to get confronted here in a really quick hurry with this concept of do this. It's not just rattle off, I know the Shema, or hey, I got verses in my little boxes that I'm wearing. But, but now Jesus says, oh, great. Now, now do that. Now live that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's think about that one just for a second. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Wait a minute. I'm irritated at my neighbors. <laughs> you know, I almost was sticking my tongue out in the car on the way to work today because this guy cut me off and I was delighted to try to go cut him off. <laughs> and I couldn't get around the car in front of me to cut the guy off in the truck and it made me mad so I was ready to stick my tongue out. And then, you know, a little phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, from the ridiculous to the more serious, um, a, 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 a person at work or a person in your neighborhood or a person you know well that, that harms you or speaks of you ill and, and whatever, our response is to, is to get them back, not to love them in the way that we love ourselves. That, that is not a minor matter. Do this. Do this and you will live. And when he says live, he's not just talking about you'll be able to, to, you know, to, to live out your you know, 84 years or whatever it is. He's talking about really live. Look at John 10. When God says do this and live, he's not, he's not saying do this and exist. He's not saying do this and you'll get by. He's not saying do this and all the bad stuff won't feel so horrible. He's giving a, a, a sense of what life is supposed to be like. It's not, it's not a marathon that we survive. It's, it's, a, it's a journey to be cherished. Yes, with negative aspects to it. Yes, with seasons of heartache. But nonetheless, we're meant to live, really live. Look at John 10, verse, verse 10. He's giving a full description of, of his relationship as a shepherd to his sheep. And when he gets down to verse 10, he says, The thief, that's Satan and his crowd, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I, on the other hand, have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. To the full. 
There is nothing in Scripture ever about just getting by, eking out a, a life. It's tough, it's hard, it's difficult, but I'm going to make it to heaven. No! That is not the intent. Yes, seasons of difficulty. Yes, pain. Yes, difficulties of a variety of kinds. But the intent is that we cherish and live with power and enthusiasm the life given to us, not survive. So when he says to this guy, hey, you've answered correctly. Now do this and really live. You can imagine what this lawyer is thinking. Well, I do this. I love my neighbor. He doesn't even love God that way, much less his neighbor. Otherwise, he wouldn't be trying to trip up Jesus. So the, so the lawyer now is, is stepping back. You can almost picture him stepping back a step and, and going, hmm, well, I better get this clarified exactly who is my neighbor. Because if I have to love everybody like I love myself, this is, this is over the top. So let's clarify who exactly is my neighbor. And this, this, this sounds so much like a, a personality I might have. Okay, i got to do that exactly how many times? <laughs> I would have done just like Peter. you know, you got to forgive him? 70 times 70? 490 times. Okay, no problem. I got it. 489. 488. I, that's just how my brain works. I mean, I, I, I probably would have said neighbor. Is that two doors down, three doors down? You know? Is that a whole block? I mean, all the way to the end of the block? Well, what if we don't have blocks? What, if you're in an apartment building, is that everybody in my apartment building? Or my floor? Just my floor. You know? Is it, is it everybody in my sorority? Or is it just the girls on my floor? Is it everybody in my university? Surely not. Is it all the girls I know? Or all the guys I know? Or... All the, can we geographically take a eh, 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 all right if you're in this is arc you're my neighbor that's what this guy's doing so he comes back with this classic question in verse number 29 who is my neighbor he's saying Lord if you're telling me I gotta live a certain way which is to love God with everything I got and love my neighbor like I care about myself let's be very specific who is it that I have to include in this circle of, of this kind of living this kind of attitude. Who is my neighbor? Now, by the way, I put in your notes, and I'm going to make this case before we're done, that I think the answer to that question is anyone who has a need that I can meet. And I'm going to make my case in a little bit, but I think that's the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Anyone that has a need that I can meet, in whole or in part, so Jesus is going to answer his question, who is my neighbor? Back to, to uh, uh, Luke 10. And he's going to answer it with a story. So in verse number 30, in reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. Now pause. So Jesus, the, the attorney says, okay, i got to love God with everything i got, and I've got to love my neighbor as myself. Let's narrow down. I want to live. I want to have all that abundant life stuff. So exactly who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. 
and he starts telling a story. This is a story that you and I have come to know as the Good Samaritan. It's misnamed. It shouldn't be named that. It does involve a, a Samaritan, but I, I don't like the expression Good Samaritan, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Let me give you a little bit of a setting. So the story apparently happens just after the Feast of the Tabernacles. You remember that there were three major feasts or festivals that every Jewish male had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So they had to leave their villages and three times a year go up to Jerusalem and participate in all the events having to having uh, around the, the temple and so on. And so the Feast of, of Tabernacles is one of those. The Feast of Tabernacles is over and now everybody is headed home. Now, headed home, Jerusalem is up on a bunch of hills. So when people talk about leaving Jerusalem, they talk about going down. If they're going to Jerusalem, they're going up. It's not a high hill, trust me, but it's nonetheless, from a geographical standpoint, considered a hill. So when he starts his story, he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jericho is about 17 miles outside of Jerusalem, which is not very far, less than a day's walk of a a normal adult. Uh, but that particular walk is, is down a very treacherous kind of uh, path. It descends down uh, all the way to the River Jordan, and it's curvy. I uh, put in your notes, it's rugged, it's bleak, it's a rocky road, and it was known historically as being a, a sneaky pay, place for the robbers to all hang out. So if you were going anywhere towards Jericho, you wanted to go in a large group. You didn't want to go in onesie twosies. You wanted to go in the day. You didn't want to go at night. This is a scary trek. It's not. It's not easily done. So this guy, having uh, finished whatever he was doing in in Jerusalem, heads down this seventeen mile trek, and he gets attacked by robbers. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, and they left him half dead. Now this is not a, a made up story. This is a real man who is beat to within an inch of his life. He's left naked. He's left beat up. All of the wounds that are on him are not being addressed. He is looking like he's dead. Now, along comes, in verse 31, a priest. Now, who's the priest? In the Old Testament, when they set up the tabernacle and God placed a place uh, where his Shekinah glory could live and he could meet with man, He set it up so that there were, remember, compartments to the tabernacle. There was the outer courtyard where the sacrifices were made. Then there was the inner room, or we call it the holy place, where the priests, plural, could go. And then there was the inner room, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go, and only once a year. So so someone had to be designated as the priests. Who are they? They were Aaron's sons. So if you went to Moses and his brother Aaron, remember Moses says, I can't talk. Who's going to talk to Pharaoh? God says, you bring your brother Aaron along. So Aaron was, was, was given and down through his lineage, his, 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 his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and so on, the job of being priests. Now, that was a high dignitary position. So in our culture, it would be like... Um, like a, a, you know, a, a national representative or a, a senator or a governor, somebody of some, some nat renown. This is not a, just a schlocky old whatever. This is a guy who would have been known in the community and he had certain specific spiritual requirements of him, things he could do and things he could not do. One of the things he could not do is get anywhere near a dead body because that would be considered a, a step of uncleanness. 
and it would make him both ceremonially unclean. Now he can't go work in the in the in the temple or the tabernacle, and it would also make him, uh, from a social standpoint, unclean. You just that was one of the laws. You can read it in the book of Leviticus. You didn't you didn't mess with any any dead bodies. So he's walking along. This priest, he's going down. And, and he's fulfilled all of his jobs. He's finished his work. He's no longer in his office, in his role, in his position. And he comes on to this guy. He's naked. He's beat up. He's bleeding. He is half dead, not moving, so much so that he thinks he's dead. And what is, what is this, this high, holy, esteemed member of society do? <laughs> and when he saw the man, what does the next phrase say? Passed by on the other side. He passed by on the other side. So he looks over, he sees the man, and he gives him a wide berth. Comes to the other side of the road and walks on by. Doesn't go over and check on him, doesn't look to see if he is breathing, doesn't inquire about anything. And the Bible specifically says he passed by on the other side. He didn't just go by and act like he didn't see him. He physically moved himself to the other side of the road and went on by. All right. Story continues, verse 32. So too, a Levite. Now, who's a Levite? Back to the tabernacle and the temple. They needed guys to help the priests. There weren't that many that were descended from, from uh, Aaron. And so now we need some guys that can help, can assist, can, can do some of the jobs that, that Aaron's family could not do in and around the temple. And they were of the tribe of Levi. Now remember, Jacob had 12 sons. One of them is Levi. Those members of that tribe, the Levite tribe, Levi's sons, became the Levites. And they were the assistants, the helpers, the workers that were related to very specific duties in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle or the temple. They did not have as lofty a position, as spiritually as lofty, or even culturally as lofty as the priests did, but nonetheless were, were high mucky mucks in society. And he's going to walk by. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, what does he do? Passed by on the other side. He, too, does not get up. Close. He doesn't examine the wounds. He doesn't talk to the guy. He doesn't have an exchange. He doesn't see what need he may or may not be able to help with. He simply walks to the other side and keeps going by. But, verse 33 says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now let's pause. Who is a Samaritan? <coughs> I put some notes in there. I captured them out of a, a commentary. I thought they were helpful for, for some folks. The, the truth is this. If you looked at the, at the map of Israel, and you got Galilee in the north, and you got Judea and, and Jerusalem in the south, there's a center section, right? I got my little map here. <laughs> the center section is Samaria. It was a section that during, for example, when um, the Assyrians came in over the top to, to destroy uh, Israel. They, they, they didn't get all the way to the south. They kind of majored in the center. And one of the things they did as they attacked and took over Israel was they intermarried. 
So they left a, a bunch of their people there and they married the, the Israelites and they became a mixed race. So now the Jews in the south, uh, around Judea and in Jerusalem, of a pure mindset as well as a purer race, looked up at the Samaritans down their noses and said, oh, mixed race, they're all mixed up, they're no longer pure, we don't like them. Well, Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And over years, that became more and more and more pronounced, that difference, that, that hatred between the two. And that hatred was crystallized in, in nasty things that the Samaritans did to the Jews and the Jews did to the Samaritans. To the point that when it gained the, the first century, when Jesus was walking the earth, they would not speak to each other. A good Jew that was leaving Galilee and had to go to Jerusalem went around Samaria. He did not go through. Which is why in John 4, when, when Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. And he ends up in John 4 having that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. They're all going, what is he doing? A, he's talking to women. That doesn't happen. B, he was talking to a Samaritan. That did not happen. And as a matter of fact, he has a, she has a glorious encounter with Jesus. The Samaritans hate the Jews. The Jews hate the Samaritans. So coming down this nasty road is now not the high mucky muck priest, nor the also influential Levite. Now it is a... Spit on the ground, Samaritan. Now look. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Your Bible may say he had compassion on him. His heart was moved. Not just moved like, oh, gee, that's a shame. I'll pray for you. <laughs> Doggone, looks like you're having a tough day. Hang in there. He says, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Now pause. What is his reaction? The Samaritan. He generously gave everything he had. His time, his physical help. He didn't go on the other side. He goes right to the guy. He expresses his compassion. Oil and, and wine, those were uh, common uh, items in their culture, but they were also forms of, of medicine. Ways of mixing it became a medical response. He's making some salves. He's pouring a little of this and a little of that, and he's getting it on there trying to, to help with the wounds. The Bible says that, that he, he's, he's binding him up. He says he, it's a, a, about he bandaged his wounds. What did he use for bandages? His own clothes. So he took his shirt off and he ripped it up into pieces. They didn't have wardrobes like ours. That was it. That was probably his only shirt. He tore it up so that he could take the cloth and bind up with, that, with the medicine that he was, that he was applying. How did he, how did he, did he just leave him there then? No. It says he picks him up, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, picked him up. Now look, the, the, the priest wouldn't even go over so he could remotely be looking like he touched a dead body. This guy is over arms underneath. The man is naked. Men do not touch each other when they don't have clothes on. 
He's binding up this guy's wounds. He's physically holding him to himself. He takes him to his donkey and puts him up on his form of transportation. He's not going to get to ride anymore. And he leads this guy with the donkey to an inn, which would have taken him all day long to find. And when he finds it, what does he do? He lays out all the money he's got. That amount of money amounted to about two days' worth of wages. So he's taken two days' worth of pay, and he gives it to the innkeeper, and he says, look, I want you to take care of him. And he says, and when I come back, guys, do not miss this, when I come back, I'm not dumping him. I'm leaving him in your care because i got something i got to go do. But when I double back, when I come back to see how he's doing, if you need anything else, put it on my account. I'll pay it when I get back. So, remember our lawyer standing there listening to this story. He's asked the question, who is my neighbor? Verse 36. Jesus asked this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? See, he's trying to get this guy, this, this attorney that's really just trying to trip him up. But he's trying to answer the question, how, how, do, I, how do I gain eternal life? And he says, well, you love God with everything you got, and you love your neighbor like yourself. And then our lawyer equivocates and does, well, exactly who is my neighbor? And he tells this story. So back to my definition of who's our neighbor. Anyone that we know of that has a need. So who's your neighbor? Is it enough to say, praying for you, Sling. Tough, tough situation you're in there. Praying for you. Maybe she doesn't need me to pray for her. Or maybe not exclusively. Maybe she needs me to show up. I've told this story before, but one of my knee surgeries, I don't remember which one, tons of people were trying to be helpful to me, and I'm one of those that when I'm sick, leave me alone. You know, just leave me in my cave, and if I don't die, I'll come out. And <laughs> So all those wonderful well wishes of, you know, can we, can we, can we, can we, I, you know. So one day, for whatever reason, Barbara had gone to work, and uh, she'd leave the door unlocked in the house because some people were dropping off food, and they'd just sneak in and drop it in the you know front front lobby there, and then we'd have it for whatever. So Barb's gone, Brianna's gone to school, great-grandma, I don't know where she was. But anyway, all of a sudden, I'm up in my room. I can't really get out of bed, and I hear the front door open. So I start hollering, and nobody answers. And I go, geez, what is going on? And then I hear some rustling around downstairs, and all of a sudden, I hear the vacuum going. <laughs> what? <laughs> So I finally get out of bed. I waddle over trying to, you know, get over the, the banister to look. And here's my friend. Her name was Loretta. She was just... <laughs> and I'm hollering, Loretta, what are you doing? She is totally ignoring me. <laughs> so, I, you know, I can't stand there very long. Finally, I get mad. I go back and get in bed. A little while later, she comes upstairs, thumping the vacuum all the way upstairs. She starts down the hallway. I am screaming at this woman. <laughs> get out of my house. What are you doing? She's totally ignoring me. <laughs> I love that story. I love that story. Because what I really needed was a little help with the house. I mean, you know, these things were all going on, and a little help with the house was a whole lot more than just praying for you, praying for you. 
Sometimes just your physical presence. A young girl, a young woman loses a baby. You're not going to tell her anything that makes her feel better. But maybe just sitting there, depending on your relationship, is a precious gift. Something they need, something practical. Grab the kids, take them out. Do their laundry. I, 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 I'm urging you to see the answer to that attorney's question, who's my neighbor, is anybody that has a need that we can meet or at least participate in meeting. Maybe we can't meet the whole thing. Maybe the body of Christ has got to come around that person and everybody plays a part. But we dare not approach this whole topic with a, yeah, hope you're better, praying for you. That triteness, that refusal to get involved, the, I don't know, get dirty, they don't, this guy stunk, he's bleeding, he's without clothes, and, and, and our guy took pity on him, saw him first off, really saw him, and then took pity on him. I'm suggesting we really see people. Look around. Here at school, you see somebody in the hallway, the countenance on their face, one of the young moms maybe, is slightly off. Something's going on. Stop! Ask a question. Offer to take them to a, you know, a cup of coffee. Inquire. Is there something you could do? You're further along and understanding maybe the age of kids or something that you might be able to address? Fine, throw them on your donkey. You know? Maybe at church, you notice they, they mention a young family that's, that's struggling in some way. Dad lost his job. Don't just, you know, I'm praying for you. Write a check. You know, get them, get them some groceries, for heaven's sakes. Give them a, a gas card. A young kid in college trying to get through, and you, you find out about them in the young whatever class at, at, at church. And they're struggling just to be independent and get, get some education. You don't think they would be thrilled out of their mind with a $50 gas card? Oh my goodness. See, answering the question, who, are, who is our neighbor, is not just a, a prayer list. It's a, it's a get involved. It's roll your sleeves up. What, what do they need? Now we can't, uh, excuse me, you go around the other way, please. Oh, no, no, I can't. Uh, I have to go through the double doors. I'm too much. Oh, I'll help him. Okay, thank you. Uh, We're back to neighbor. Neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. <laughs> I hate you, Barbara. I hate you, Barbara. Excellent illustration. Don't wait. You're interrupting something. How many times have we said, though, you're interrupting something? We're rolling along in our little life, and that need is interrupting. You know, I am as guilty, obviously, I am as guilty as anyone on the face of the earth, but I think the principle is still so applicable. Who is our neighbor? Gosh, guys, we could make a long list just from what you know right now. You know, so if I looked at Colleen, and, and I know Colleen, so she won't mind me bugging her. But Colleen, if I said to you right now, if I gave you a pen and a piece of paper of people who have some needs, you, you'd have a number, a number. 
from your neighborhood, from your family, from church, from Bible study, from school. Okay, what are we going to do about that? We're going to walk on the other side? Or are we going to respond? Remember, his answer was, do this. Not think about this, or pray about this, or consider that, but do this. So my so what here? Well, before we get to that, I want to ask the question, who is the real neighbor? So in Leviticus 19, when he, when he talks about love your neighbor as yourself, the, the neighbor is the recipient of your love. But in this story, the neighbor is the one doing the loving. Right? So, so notice for me, please, that the capacity to love one's neighbor is not dependent on the identity of the person that needs the love. It is dependent on the capacity of the Christian to love. We don't love that guy because he deserves it. We love that guy because it is incumbent on us as a child of God to respond. Not because they deserve it, or they're worthy of it, or they've earned it, or they haven't burned us. They may not be worthy, they may not have earned it, and they may have burned us. We do not get the privilege of walking on the other side. So, verse 37 the Bible says the expert on the law replied, replied to his question about who is the neighbor. And he says, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, what did he tell him? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I, I, went, I want to turn you to um, two passages, Matthew 7 and Micah 6, and we'll be done. Go to Matthew 7. We, we typically call this the golden rule. Matthew uh, seven twelve. Matthew chapter seven and verse number twelve. So in verse nine he says, If your son asks for a bread, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We all know that. We call that the golden rule. But go to Micah, Old Testament book. Not too far back from Matthew. Micah chapter 6. And God kind of encapsulates a, a, a statement in three little phrases about what all of us should be doing. What is good? What is the good stuff that we ought to do? Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8. He has shown you, O mortal, O man, what is good. So what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly. To do justly. To not hoard, to not consume, to not, to not have when others don't have, but to do justly, to love mercy. But he doesn't deserve it. He needs to get a job. No, he doesn't deserve it any more than you do or I did. But to love mercy, to go out our way, and then to walk humbly with our God. Do not be sticking your tongue out at people on the freeway. <laughs> I, I think, I think those, those disciplines, that right there, do justice, love mercy, 
and walking humbly. That will help us respond to our neighbors in need. Turn up your meter. Turn up, turn up the Geiger counter. Turn up the, you know, we got it on low. Turn it up a high. And, and, and see how many people in your life this week have a need that you might help address. And then be about doing it. And watch what happens inside of you. There is an unbelievable thing that happens when we start reaching out, when we start supplying, when we start offering, we start responding, we start, start communicating, we start caring. There's, there's some amazing things that happen inside of our hearts. Who's your neighbor? Let's pray. Well, this is a good lesson. It fits right in with Ephesians and our discussion of the togetherness that was outlined for us. <coughs> the Jews didn't want to say that the Gentiles were their neighbor, and the Gentiles didn't want to look at the Jews that way either. And we have people in our society that we want to separate ourselves from. <coughs> Maybe it's a, a separation uh, by race or color or political affiliation or where we live or financial status or cars we drive or what our kids do. And all around us there are people laying that need our response as a neighbor. Turn our, turn our sensitivity meters up, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.